Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Hello, and thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm your host, Rebecca King, and today I'm talking to Stefan Merrill Block, a fiction writer and the author of two novels, The Story of Forgetting and The Storm at the Door. He recently visited us here at Washington University in St. Louis and gave a talk about shame and writing. As artists, shame can either be very motivating or totally debilitating, depending on the situation. So to start today's discussion, Stefan is going to share the story of his first encounter with shame as an artist. Then we'll move on to talk about how shame influences his work and his creative process now, before ending with his advice for other writers. So without further ado, here is Stefan Merrill Block. I didn't discover serious graphic novels until my early 20s. And as much as I enjoy them now, the form is freighted for me with envy and regret. I always wanted to be a writer, but the truth is that as a kid, I wanted equally to be a visual artist. Graphic novels might have been a natural fit for me, if only my second career as an artist had not died of shame when I was 13. I was never an exceptional drawer, but like Sammy Clay and Michael Chabon's The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, I was an enterprising thief. In my late childhood throes of infatuation with comic books, my so-called artwork was nothing but painstaking plagiarisms of my favorite illustrations, the hulking kinetic musculature that I borrowed from back issues of Daredevil, The Amazing Spider-Man, Uncanny X-Men. With the encouragement of my parents, I took my imitations to art contests at comic book conventions, where I could usually ribbon in the 10 to 12 age bracket. Just after my 13th birthday, I was presented with an opportunity for my first great artistic leap. Keith, the oily, shaggy manager of Atomic Age, the comic book store where I spent so many of my afternoons, told me that he had decided to host an art contest in the store. Though Keith had never seen my clumsy Crayola marker imitations, I had given him an earful about my many convention awards and he encouraged me to enter. Is there a 13-year-old's category? A 13-year-old's category, Keith snorted. What does the next Jack Kirby need to beat more 13-year-olds for? In a contest with older teenagers, quite possibly with adults, I knew I couldn't compete. But after all my grand claims to Keith, I felt I had no choice. Over my bedroom desk, I had tacked the famous Goethe quote printed on the front of a card my parents had given me with my birthday presents. Be bold and mighty forces will come to your aid. After a few days of fretful consideration, I struck upon the amateur striver's solution. I would do something unusual with the form that would distract from my hackishness. A similar instinct would, a few years later, inspire me to write short stories from the perspectives of dogs, kitchen tables, Greek deities. I commenced, as usual, to produce a careful facsimile of a beloved comic book image, a wonderfully menacing full-panel illustration of Venom, his serpentine tongue wagging, his claws poised in attack from the pages of The Amazing Spider-Man. And my gesture toward originality was this. To capture the assaultive three-dimensionality of Venom's pounce, I decided to make it actually three-dimensional. I had done my copying on cardstock, which I cut into little pieces, then rigged together with paper clips and scotch tape to create an odd sort of sculpture. Venom, deconstructed into seven or eight layers, literally jumping out at the viewer. 
I took my wonky decoupage to Atomic Age and put it on the competition shelf. I visited my venom every day leading up to the judging, and every day was more demoralizing than the last. Looking upon the competition shelf, I received my first good lesson in artistic shame. Accumulating around my crude, childish copy was the work of actual artists. Not only Spider-Men, Spawns, Batman, rendered in styles both disturbingly artful and gallingly original, but also invented superheroes, soaring over intricately detailed worlds, ruined fanged apocalypses, extraterrestrial cities, our own hot and horizontal Dallas suburb. All that kept me from pulling my work out of consideration was the deeper shame of admitting to my parents and to Keith that I was a quitter. I looked at my clunky, blotchy failure for a long while, waiting for some last-minute lightning bolt of inspiration. And sure enough, just as I always imagined was true of great artists, when I needed inspiration most, it struck me. When no one was looking, I reached up to Venom, plucked away his right arm, crumpled it, and threw it into the trash. It was defaced, I wailed ten minutes later as I climbed into our minivan. Someone defaced it, probably because they knew you would win, my mother suggested. She had not seen my competition. Probably, I said. To spare myself the shame of my loss, I had disqualified my work, and not just that day. My venom might have been a poor, kitty trifle, but it was still the best artwork that I'd ever made, and I destroyed it. And there, in the months that followed, was another lesson in artistic shame. It has gravity on its side. If you don't keep one foot on the brakes, shame can take on its own runaway velocity. By 14, I had more or less stopped drawing altogether. Artists, and writers I think especially, suffer shame in many forms. That we don't have the necessary skills or gifts. That our own cramped perspectives could not possibly be meaningful to anyone else. That our stories aren't worth telling. If there's one kindness we can do for ourselves, I think, it's to stop feeling ashamed about our shame. Over the nearly 20 years since that afternoon at Atomic Age, I've come to see that shame is Shiva-like, both a destroyer and a creator. Shame, after all, is meticulous and creative. It's the fear of public shame that drives one to revise draft after draft, trying to find the better, more artful way to tell a story. But shame is more than our best tool. For most artists, it's constitutional. Shame is self-awareness and empathy gone neurotic. It's an effect of our perception of how others perceive us, and it's hard to imagine a good artist who is not very aware of how he is coming across. Shame is also, I suspect, a major reason why people want to become artists in the first place, to dispel or at least compensate for our failures to fit in the world in the ways that others seem so easily to fit. In my life as a writer, the impulse that dismembered my venom has become very familiar to me. I have wanted many times to tear the limbs off something I've already published. But publishing my work, fixing it in digital or paper permanence that forbids retroactive destruction, has taught me a lesson I would like to tell that 13-year-old. The trick to managing shame, or at least my trick, is a kind of shame-faith balancing act. To see my present insufficiencies clearly, but also to distance myself from them with a faith in the better, confident, competent artist I could someday be. And the more I get to know other artists, the more I believe that what we see as a body of work is often just a string of hopeful failures. Some striver's best faltering attempts to become the artist he or she might one day be. Stefan now makes a living working as a writer, and so I asked him what he wished he had known about shame earlier in his career. The career of fiction writing, of course, is fraught with shame, and there's, there's sort of no way out of it. Either you're going to be a writer who 
is feeling ashamed because they're not making a living as a writer and have to work another career. Or you are a writer who is supposedly making a living as a writer, but you sit there alone while the world goes to work and everything takes forever and then you, you destroy the last six months of what you've done. So, I mean, shame will always be a part of the process. But and the thing I wish, I wish someone had told me was that, that it is shame that makes the work better. And, and, and also is shame that, that often serves as the best content for the work. I tell my students that uh, the two emotions that really drive a reader through a text that, that make you keep turning pages are fear and desire. It's basic, visceral human feeling. And I think that shame often it's like an expression of fear and desire coupled, you know? We're often ashamed of the things that we want and we're ashamed of the things that we're afraid of. And so I, I think that the feeling of shame is a feeling of great drama and could potentially be a great dramatic subject. Uh, there's also this effect that shame has on memory, I think, that the things that I feel most ashamed about in my past are the things that are most salient. And I just can hold on so specifically to all the details of that moment surrounding the moments when I felt most ashamed. And, and I, don't, I don't remember feeling victorious in the same way or even happiness. I, don't, I can't hold on to in that way. It's, there's something about shame that I think as a species we're particularly adept at holding on to. And so, especially if you're writing from memory, you know, those memories are just so tactile and you can give those to your character, in, I think, in a meaningful way. So how can we as writers learn to work with these helpful aspects of shame without becoming paralyzed by it? Is that even possible? I remember reading this essay by Jonathan Franzen where he said that, um, I think he was quoting someone else, in fact, but he said the proper way to write about shame is not to write through it, but to write around it. And I thought that rang so true with my own experience that whenever I've tried to write through the feeling in the sense of like that feeling becomes a lens through which I see I'm describing my story, then the story is just going to be lifeless. But if I write around it in the sense that it's still central, but I'm approaching it from a sort of obtuse angle and not letting that feeling color the telling of the story, that's when the stories really come to life. So in a sense, like when shame can become a funny object, when you, when you can like laugh at your own shame or a character's shame, or when you can deflect it onto a character who's very unlike you. And so I think when my work has felt less shameful to me, it has been the occasions where I found ways to write around it instead of letting myself be overwhelmed by it. At the bottom of shame, of course, is fear. And for many writers, it's the fear of being discovered or outed as a fraud or a phony. The imposter syndrome captures this idea pretty well. So what happens when we have to face those fears, when they come true? Well, Stefan Merrill Block has just such a story. I try not to read reviews. I end up reading almost every review. And the hardest truth to admit to is that everyone's right. You know, every, like the people who love it and the people who hate it, everyone's right. And there's something to learn from all of them. And there have been reviews that have, have made me stop writing for a few weeks. But the shame is never, it's never quite as terrible as I think it's going to be when the book comes out. I remember there was one um, not so great review of my book in the Wall Street Journal, my, my last novel. I mean, there, there were good reviews too coming out, so I guess that helped buffer the experience a little bit. But I remember, I didn't even know it was going to be in there. I happened to have to see a Wall Street Journal. I happened to open it up and see, see this review of my book. 
And, uh, you know, it would have been exactly the moment I had feared. This, I think Wall Street Journal is probably the most well-read newspaper in the country. And I, I was like, looking at some negative things written about me there. And I, um, I just burst into laughter. And I just found it so funny. I don't know. I can't explain it. Like, there's something about the relief of, like, a really bad anticipation coming to be that, that I felt like I was confessing to something, you know, it's like, like Raskolnikov admitting to his murder or something. It's like he had tortured me for so long, it was a relief when it finally happened. So what advice does he have for writers who are struggling to conquer their own shame? You have to forgive yourself constantly. I, I just read an essay by Ann Patchett where she said she has to forgive herself every sentence that she writes. And I think if... That self-forgiveness is something you have to learn as, as you go along. Like, if you're not constantly forgiving yourself for your failures and for your sense of insufficiency, you simply won't produce anything, or I simply wouldn't produce anything. One, one thing that gives me the courage to allow myself that self-forgiveness is reading you know, essays or interviews with the writers I love most. Almost all of them feel deep, deep shame about things that I consider to be absolute masterpieces. Um, and I think... I've started to come up with a theory that they are masterpieces because they feel ashamed. Many thanks to Stefan Merrill Block, fiction writer and author of the novels The Story of Forgetting and The Storm at the Door, for sharing his insights and experiences with us. And thanks to all of you, too, for tuning in to Hold That Thought. Have thoughts of your own after today's podcast? Well, find us on Facebook or Twitter and join the conversation. 